You're listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies, the Center for West European Studies, and the European Union Center at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu slash EU West Europe. Welcome, everybody. Um, we're excited to have many of you with us in this virtual room. My name is Sabine Lang. I'm a professor of European and International Studies at the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies at UW, where I also direct the Center for West European Studies, which is an Erasmus Plus Jean Monnet Center of Excellence. And I hold the EU Jean Monnet Chair that is deeply interested in issues of civil society, inclusion, and diversity in the EU. So I think you're right in the right spot with us today. I'd like to welcome you to this year's winter and spring quarter series on talking gender in the EU, which some of you might have visited and uh, chimed into last year when we uh, inaugurated the series. We had a whole set of positive feedback, many different audiences from across the US and Europe. And so we decided to continue this series into this year. This year, uh, we have a first lecture today, um, bringing together speakers for what we consider to be a loosely threaded conversations about matters of gender equality across the EU, its member states, but also Europe at large. Before we get started today, let me uh, address a few housekeeping issues, please. So one, you've noticed this is a Zoom webinar. That means nobody can hear and see you. Um, we do ask you to put questions, comments into the Q&A. You can do that at any time during the talk. You can do it after the talk. And I will, at the end of our speakers, talk, um, converse with her with those questions in mind that are in the Q&A. So we hope we will get to as many questions as possible. Uh, we're thinking about a roughly 30-minute lecture here. And while um, our speaker is working here, you are already welcome to use the Q&A. Um, as always, this speaker series could not have been possible without dedicated sponsors. Um, I would like to, to name the Jackson School, in particular, the Center for Global Studies, CWES, and the EU Jean Monnet Center, who all chime in to make this organizational backdrop of these talks possible. And of course, the biggest thanks, as always, goes to CWES Managing Director Phil Lyon and our program coordinator, Susanna Haley, for putting a lot of work into organizing these talks. So learning more about how states engage with gender equality will take us today to Sweden as well as back here to the US and our speaker will help us explore a territory that I think in most of the 20th century 
literature faced very few questions about how it really addresses gender and sexuality rights. Namely, we're gonna talk about foreign policy. We're utterly delighted to have Professor Elisa Rayner with us, who has all the credentials to really provide a deep set of insights into how these rights have started to inform. And in some cases, I understand she argues, become central to foreign policy. Elisa has worked in more foreign policy contexts than I can really mention and elaborate on here. Among them are many years in the State Department where she designed and monitored human rights programs in North Africa and in the Gulf region. She also managed programs for UNDP and USAID. And then lucky for us in the Jackson School, she decided to return to academia and get her PhD in our very own Jackson School. A PhD program. And I'm happy to proud to say that she was our first graduate of this PhD program in 2016. Elisa is currently an associate professor of international relations at American Public University School of Security and Global Studies, as well as an affiliate assistant professor here at UW at the Department of Scandinavian Studies. She will talk today about the book that resulted from her PhD thesis and that just came out. It is called From Pariah to Priority, How LGBTIQ Rights Became a Pillar of American and Swedish Foreign Policy. It's out with SUNY University Press and I can only make a big plea and advertisement for it. I would like to turn this over now to Elisa and look very much forward to your talk and a discussion afterwards. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sabina. I appreciate it. Let's just make sure. Can you all see my, my screen okay? Yes, we can. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. Well, thank you for coming today. And I'm delighted to present in this lecture series. I wanna say thank you to the Center for Western European Studies for inviting me. And then a particular thank you to Sabina Lang, who's very dear to me. And as she mentioned, was the chair of my dissertation committee and with me from day one of this book project. So I'm so grateful to the support. So again, this is, I'm gonna talk about my book today that just came out in November. And again, the title, I'm, I'm impressed Sabina got the whole title out. It's a very long one. <laughs> From Pariah to Priority, How LGBTI Rights Became a Pillar of American and Swedish Foreign Policy. So this book was published by SUNY University Press. And it's a culmination of five years of my research from the United States, Sweden, and the European Un Union. So just to give you kind of an outline of the book and how it's organized, the introduction chapter examines the genesis of LGBTI diplomacy. So to, to give you kind of the overall context, this is still a very new field in diplomatic work. It's really only been since the early 2000s that just a handful of governments have conducted LGBTI diplomacy. So then the next chapter I go on into the US case study where I kind of set up the puzzle of how did this happen? How did a country that had very openly discriminatory policies in the State Department and across foreign affairs institutions lead to and evolve in becoming to having LGBTI diplomacy as a formal diplomatic agenda? Then I look at Sweden 
And I look at the Swedish case study where it had a pioneering role as the very first country in the world to implement a formal LGBTI human rights agenda. The next chapter focuses on Uganda and what was known as this kill the gays law where the Ugandan parliament proposed the death penalty in 2009 for homosexuality. This law really became a lightning rod for foreign policy leaders to address LGBTI rights abuses in diplomatic relations. I have a theoretical framework chapter, which I tried to put towards the end of the book to make it a little more accessible to all audiences, but I situate this case study in social movement literature human rights theories, and then broader international relations scholarship. I end the book with the conclusion of my main ideas, but also policy recommendations to make this book timely and relevant to contemporary foreign policy leaders and human rights advocates. So let me talk a minute about my case selection and how I kind of came up with the, this, the premise of the book, where I look at I seek to explain how and why did Sweden and the United States begin LGBTI diplomacy. So let me explain these two cases. The United States, this might surprise many people, but it is the largest donor in actual numbers to LGBTI global civil society uh, since beginning in 2011. It has global reach where there's an embassy or US consulate in, in pretty much every country and region of the world. And then also from my perspective, I was a diplomat um, from 2005 to 2016. And so I'm able to offer this kind of unique insider perspective where I had the, the sense and the, and the knowledge of the interfunctions of the State Department and USAID in formulating foreign policy mandates. So then it's a comparison with Sweden, where again, Sweden was the first country to formally implement LGBTI diplomacy in 2005. And I, and I look at how Sweden has really become a blueprint for other countries' policies and programs in human rights diplomacy. And then just in a personal way, I speak Swedish, I have Swedish family married to Swede, and so I'm able to really understand, was able to conduct some interviews in Swedish and understand the the political context for analyzing the genesis of this policy. Okay, so let me set the premise of I can I can point you to the day, <laughs> the moment I got the idea for this book project, where in two thousand. Clinton came to power before her and every other U.S. secretary before her, U.S. leaders were either silent on LGBTI abuses or antagonistic. So, for example, when a gay man was stoned in Iran or someone beheaded in Saudi Arabia or mob killing in Jamaica, diplomats would say nothing. They would do nothing. They would say nothing. Up until as late as 2008, US diplomats in particular work against LGBTI reforms in the United Nations to stop progressive reforms. So then Obama comes and becomes president and Secretary Clinton comes to the State Department and everything, everything changed, everything shifted. She, in December, she gave this speech called Human Rights Diplomacy in the 21st Century. 
And during the speech, Secretary Clinton condemned Uganda's proposed death penalty law. This was really the first time that a top US diplomat raised the LGBTI abuses in a formal way in US foreign policy. So I was present at this speech. I was sitting in the second row at, at Georgetown University because at the time I was a career foreign affairs officer working in the State Department's Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights and Labor. And Labor. My colleagues and I can just describe this to you, just kind of, we're looking around at each other in this buzz of excitement and exhilaration of realizing this is a whole new era of human rights diplomacy in US foreign policy. So again, for the, for the historical context of, of the United States, what Clinton did in 2009 and 2011 was this really 180 degree turn from previous US foreign and domestic policy. So just as a, a briefer, from the 1950s, we have what scholars denote as, as quote, the lavender scare. This was under the McCarthy era where officials actively sought out, quote, commies and queers in the federal government and an estimated over 4,000 LGBTI people were fired from their jobs and banned from the US federal government. This official discrimination continued and extended for decades. And it wasn't really until the late 1990s that LGBTI diplomats could serve openly in the State Department. So this is, this is the puzzle. How did this happen then? How, how did the US go, go from this extremely, not just the US broadly, but the State Department specifically, go from this discriminatory institution to then promoting these rights in places like Uganda and Jamaica? This was very unexpected. And if you had asked me if this would happen in my lifetime, I, I wouldn't have thought this would, this would ever come about in the State Department. So then to set up the, the case study premise for Sweden, again, it was the first country to formally implement this LGBTI diplomatic agenda. And also it was the first country to formally implement a feminist foreign policy a few years later in 2014. So Swedes and Scandinavian policies often shape international human rights concepts. Sweden sets, sets normative standards for bilateral, multilateral, and global foreign policy matters. So I wanted to study this. I wanted to study Sweden's pioneering role and the genesis of Sweden's LGBTI foreign policy, especially given that when they when in the beginning they were often first and alone, sometimes they would have the Dutch and the Norwegians or others, but often they were alone to raise these issues internationally in the UN and other um, international institutions. Okay, so let me really kind of define the concept um, quickly because this is important where I wanna make sure people know this is not often, diplomats are not advocating for marriage equality or adoption or, other issues that are really at the forefront of liberal democracies. This policy is often centered around two frames. The first being ending decriminalization of homosexuality, where again, for context, uh, homosexual, uh, homosexual acts or, or homosexuality is defined as it's defined as really illegal still in about 70 countries. This changes almost every year. So approximately 70 countries, some countries repeal and some, some countries regress. Um, but then also of those 70 countries, about nine have the death penalty. Um, so you could almost say, you know, more than a third, but less than a half of the globe 
still has criminalization laws for homosexuality. So then second, ending worse form, ending the worst forms of legal discrimination and societal violence. You know, this is mob killings, imprisonment, caning, or sexual assault committed by authorities. So this policy, what it looks like in practice is its support towards global LGBTI civil society groups, you know, working in Nigeria, Vietnam, and then in places in countries such as Uganda, Indonesia, or Jamaica, it has really become one of the highest human rights, human rights priorities in diplomatic dialogues. So I wanna note here too, when I started this project, there was no empirical definition of formal LGBTI diplomacy. I couldn't find it. I couldn't find it in the field. It was still, it was still so new. Uh, so I created one for this book. I created a definition of LGBTI diplomacy and I defined it as global policies and programs with the long-term goal of promoting the social, political and economic equal rights of LGBTI people. So this work can be really diverse and sometimes it's a direct approach and sometimes it's a really indirect approach. It's supporting lawyers say in Lebanon to defend human rights advocates or training journalists in Nigeria to report on abuses or providing embassy safe space in Tanzania for advocates to meet safely. It's a really wide range of activities to support the health and equal rights of LGBTI communities. Okay, so let me talk for a, a minute about how I went about <laughs> studying this, this big uh, question of how and why did Sweden and the United States incorporate LGBTI rights into their diplomatic agendas. So I conducted a, an array of research methods where namely and probably the most unique part of my book was I had high access to interviews with diplomats, where as a former diplomat, I was able to interview high-level officers, ambassadors, special envoys, and all levels of career diplomats in the State Department and USAID. I had access and interviewed Secretary Clinton's inner circle of advisors leading up to the policy change in 2011, including the people who wrote her speech in Geneva, the one where she said gay rights are human rights and human rights are gay rights. Also, the people who formulated the ideas for the Global Equality Fund, which is the largest fund still for global LGBTI civil society, and the presidential management, excuse me, and the presidential memorandum, the people who helped draft that. I did interviews with NGOs, that stands for non-governmental organizations, and civil society groups across the United States and Europe, specifically in Washington, DC, and the West Coast of the United States, Stockholm and Brussels. I also conducted content analysis of major policy documents, speeches, and funding streams over this time frame. Next, as part of my methods, I conducted participant observation in the US, Sweden, and the EU at major advocacy events. This really centered on Stockholm Pride, where I was able to go there multiple summers. Let me explain something quickly about Stockholm Pride. This is not like what you see in other countries. This is not a parade, just a parade or a party like you see in other cities. This is really an international hub of the LGBTI movement, especially in Europe, but really it's one of the most dynamic LGBTI political events in the world. 
It's the single largest event in Scandinavia, sports, music, any festival, it's larger than any of that. And it's, entire, it's an entire week of seminars and public debates between international advocates, civil society groups, foreign diplomats, film directors, transnational activists, political party leaders, and even heads of state come. So from all of these methods, from all this data, I generated uh, the analytical section of my book and I came up with kind of five key factors of what led to the evolution of this foreign policy change. So let me describe these five factors and then I'm gonna explain each one, each one more, but to give you the headings, NGO advocacy, again, non-governmental organizational advocacy, that's Amnesty International or Human Rights Watch, advocacy towards foreign affairs institutions, insider allied government leadership, national interest and reputation, Uganda and global sensitizing events, and then transnational activism. All right, so let me explain more about these. NGO advocacy was really, really a critical factor that led to the State Department to change, as well as Swedish, across Swedish foreign affairs institutions. So again, this is Human Rights Watch, it's RFSL, the biggest um, advocacy organization in Sweden, the Council for, for Global Equality. It's all these civil society groups advocating for change. So they don't advocate all in the same way. They don't use the same tactics. So I broke it down into kind of four main tactics that civil society groups used. So the one, the first one is probably the one that people are most aware of. It's direct protest against LGBTI state policies. This is the most visible, it's marching on the street, it's open protest against state policies. Next, building coalition and convincing gate gatekeeper organizations. So a lot of interviewees discussed how in the early days, you know, in the 70s and the 80s, most of their work was first just documenting human rights abuses. Once they had evidence from places such as Russia and Brazil, these smaller organizations were able to convince gatekeeper organizations such as Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch about two things. First, that LGBTI rights abuses were in fact global and pervasive. And second, that LGBTI rights should be on par with other human rights issues, such as ethnic discrimination or disability rights. So next, a tactic used by NGOs was targeted institutional advocacy. This is especially strong in Sweden, where groups and advocacy leaders come in and they have regular meetings with key offices, leaders, and agencies within government to make, case, to make the case for LGBTI rights as a foreign policy priority. So lastly, I look at the strategies to diffuse political opposition. As you can imagine, um, this was in particularly strong in the United States, where leaders had to figure out how to approach and advocate to conservative leaders. So they came up with interesting frames that were effective, such as talking about how people were dying, you know, talking about the worst forms of human rights abuses, but then also framing it not as a human rights abuse per se, but they would often use the term fundamental freedoms 
you know, it's the abuse of somebody's fundamental freedoms in places such as Cuba or Iran. So these leaders at the time did not necessarily support marriage equality, but they were readily convinced that no one should be stoned or beheaded for their identity. So next I looked at insider allied government leadership. So when people think of advocacy, they often think of you know, marches on the streets and, and advocates coming into government to advocate the government to change. Well, there is a lot of work inside the government. And so in both contexts, you see that advocates, there are allied leaders from within government. So I found that from top to bottom, from all ranks within the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, you find allied insider leadership. Desk officers, deputy directors, middle managers, all the way to heads of party, heads of state, people from diverse positions of influence within government were able to support and place LGBTI rights on the institutional agenda. One leading advocate asserted that in the United States, without Secretary Clinton's firm support for LGBTI diplomacy, it would not have become institutionalized in the State Department. With all the other factors in place, NGO advocacy in the same time, in the same context, they needed that defining leader to formalize the agenda within the State Department. And here I just have a few pictures of really instrumental Swedish leaders who from within government, from their positions of influence, were able to, in, were able to change and influence the institutions. So next I looked at national image and reputation. A lot of human rights diplomacy can't really be explained through kind of a rationalist approach that it's going to uh, have an economic benefit necessarily for the country or, or gain a trade deal. You know, so you have to look at this through this constructivist lens of, of what's, what's happening here that the leaders would decide this is an important thing for us to prioritize in foreign policy. So in the Swedish case, some Scandinavian scholars or some scholars identify Scandinavians perceiving themselves as, as kind of legitimate promoters globally of LGBTI rights. So because of their strong domestic human rights record, they have a legitimate place to promote human rights and foreign affairs. Sweden is known for its neutrality and gender equality. So LGBTI rights diplomacy fits within its national image and reputation. In the US case, reputation also played a factor where US, where LGBTI diplomacy was framed as a departure, again, so this was 2011, as a departure for US leaders from the reputation of the United States from the Bush administration to the Obama administration. So after the Bush administration, after Iraq, after Guantanamo Bay, US leaders really sought to renew the US's reputation and to re-engage on global human rights. So they described, some described as the, uh, that LGBTI rights diplomacy became this kind of flagship policy for the US transformed engagements on international human rights. All right, and the final factor I looked at was, was Uganda, that the, the case study of, of all of these factors happening. And then in 2009, um, when a lot of governments were trying to look at LGBTI rights, Uganda proposes the death penalty. And this law 
you could describe it just as an absolute game changer. It created this sense of urgency among international diplomats. One leader explained to me that Uganda gave the world a specific example of how critical this issue was as a fundamental human right. With this law, promoting LGBTI rights was no longer this kind of abstract policy area, but rather gave leaders a specific example of what they needed to target. Another leader described that it was no longer about LGBTI, LGBTI rights generally in international affairs, but rather, how are we going to defeat this law? So this chapter argues that the Ugandan law was the central factor to trigger the de decision to institutionalize LGBTI rights in US and Swedish foreign affairs institutions. So in Sweden, LGBTI rights had already, diplomacy had already been begun a few years prior, but it was still largely on the periphery. So even in Sweden, this Ugandan law made LGBTI rights really a focal point of foreign engagement. So from this law came a historic policy decision where both countries conditioned aspects of their respective bilateral aid to Uganda in response to this proposed law. These actions mark the first time ever in diplomatic history that international donor aid was revamped on the basis of LGBTI human rights considerations. So this still set a huge precedent in foreign affairs, what happened towards this Ugandan law. So to conclude, I will talk about the conclusion of my book where I summarize, you know, kind of my main ideas, but then I also decided I really wanted to have this book relevant to scholars of international relations and human rights, but as well as current foreign policy leaders and human rights advocates. So in the book, I highlight about eight central policy recommendations at length, but I will discuss three of them here. So first, civil society groups need, or better, need to better utilize large bureaucracies. So too often people think of the government and as kind of five people at the top, maybe the president and five advisors. And, and really focus their efforts towards these large scale, you know, kind of almost abstractions where there is a vast opportunity to liaise tactically with a variety of offices from city, state, national, and international levels. NGO leaders can better situate themselves as strategic advisors, come into the halls of power and provide specific policy recommendations. So targeted institutional advocacy doesn't often make headlines. It's not, it's not a large street protest that kind of makes the news. However, it sometimes, it sometimes can be more strategic. Rather than spending limited human and financial resources on a mass protest, civil society organizations can benefit in the long term from building strategic coalitions with insider government allies. So next, the recommendation is that to keep in mind human rights issues do not have to be, you know, quote, perfected domestically for an issue to become on foreign policy agenda. So this, this issue comes a lot with this issue with a discussion of hypocrisy and, 
And the US has such a problem with LGBTI rights domestically and Sweden does too. So the, the issue is, does it have to be perfect at home before you can start having an issue in diplomatic dialogue? You know, for example, does the occurrence of domestic violence in Sweden negate Sweden's feminist foreign policy? Well, no, you know, that this is part of international affairs in modern, in modern day and that these dialogues center on solidarity. When you talk to how the diplomats actually conduct these dialogues, they center on solidarity and really working towards a common goal across borders, it's really working, building partnerships on a common goal. So last, I look at how Sweden and Scandinavia sets norms for numerous global human rights issues. I think I have some Scandinavian colleagues here on, on today. And, and what I really wanna argue here is that what happens in Scandinavia matters globally. Other governments replicate human rights norms, environmental practices, peace negotiations, and gender policies that are often generated in Scandinavia. So political scientists, foreign policy leaders, and human rights advocates should watch Scandinavia as, as for emerging trends in human rights, but also as a blueprint for policies and programs. All right, well, that is the end of my talk and I would be happy to um, take questions here, but I, the book is available right now on Amazon and Kindle. It's half price of buying it in actual physical form, but Barnes and Noble and um, the UW bookstore and library. So thank you so much. Thank you very much, Elisa. This is bringing me back to long hours we had in discussing these matters. I'm really happy about this taking the shape of the book right now. Um, maybe you can stop sharing your screen and then we'll get everybody a little bit bigger. Yes, great. Um, wonderful. So um, while I see first questions coming into the Q&A, um, maybe let's, uh, I'm gonna take my prerogative here as the one being on screen and, and ask the first question that um, has to do with your emphasis on personalities, right? Your, the, the 180 degree turn that we saw in the US with Clinton and the social democratic emphasis on these policies in Sweden. So what is exhilarating on the one hand to me also seems dangerous on the other hand, if you have, as we had in the US then in 2017, different leadership coming in again. Um, likewise in Sweden, we see the rise of the Sweden Democrats who now um, appear to be um, forming informal um, not coalitions, but understandings with the conservative party spectrum there. So I guess my question is, what do you think and what did you see under Trump um, happening in the US that would also make a 180 degree positive turn um, go backwards? Yeah, thank you for that question. I think this was the just the um, fear of a lot of advocates as soon as Trump came to power, 
um, that all of this work, all of these efforts were just going to disappear. And it didn't, shockingly enough. Under Trump, the Global Equality Fund not only kept its funding, but um, kept its funding levels. And then the special envoy position wasn't filled, but it also wasn't cut. There was some very surprising non-activity on this issue um, that really surprised some advocates and observers. And then in the middle of Trump of the Trump administration, um, he renewed this policy and especially towards, you know, kind of, uh, you know, contentious states with the United States. So renewed the policy of um, calling out Iran and Iran's treatment towards LGBTI people. So, you know, to your point, I, I don't want to give the impression that one leader can just make sweeping changes throughout a large bureaucracy. That's really not the case. And in, in some ways, I even wrote a follow-on article about this that I called a bureaucracy, a firewall for democracy, where there are so many procedures and policies in place that a lot of, you know, again, advocates working from the outside and, and um, civil service officers working from the inside you know, made sure that it was institutionalized, made sure that there was reporting requirements, that there was funding, um, that it was kind of, uh, one person was calling it baked in to the bureaucracy. And so it's still largely there. It's still, you know, there's um, human rights reporting requirements of all countries in the world every year. There's funding. So I argue that you, you need leadership from within. You need that critical, you know, person to make the statements and do the the leadership have the leadership role, um, but it is not easy to change a, a um, large bureaucracy wholesale. You need a lot of factors at play happening at once. Mm -hmm. So what historically might have been a firewall against further LGBTQ rights might now be um, establishing a firewall against uh, backlash. That's, yes. that's an interesting point. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Yeah. All right. Um, I'm going to go to some questions from, from our audience here. Um, so I have Nick Schroedl here um, asking about your use of the category LGBTI, um, asking if it is not too broad a category to really use in this, this, this paradigm uh, work that you're doing? Would it make sense to have subcategories? Would you see different developments if you'd look at LGB versus trans versus intersectional um, people, for example? Yeah, thank you, Nick. That's a good question. And this issue comes up a lot with the acronym. The acronym is um, it's challenging, you know, to have it be inclusive, but yet um, still market what community, you know, who who belongs and who does not. Who is this policy covering? Which really matters in foreign affairs because that leads to who who has access to foreign aid, who gets these programs, who is considered a beneficiary. Um, so I have a large note in my book <laughs> uh, why I chose this acronym in particular, um, because it is evolving and changing. And again, you know, who is um, considered as far as um, belonging to these groups? So I decided to use at the, what the U.S. government acronym was at the time, as well as the Swedish government 
as well as Amnesty International. Those three, uh, when I wrote this book, were all using the acronym LGBTI. Um, and so there's been a lot of criticism that the, the, the programs have mainly gone towards gay male organizations, say in, in Vietnam or in Kenya, it's often, it is disproportionate in how the activities um, play out and who they end up supporting um, in country. So, but again, this is such a new policy. Um, the German government just started LGBTI diplomacy um, just this past year in March. And so I think this is one of the issues that's evolving of how, how do we make sure equitable and inclusive distribution of aid and programs. Um, but as far as the acronym I chose to use, this was the kind of institutional categorization that is used by these governments. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thank you, makes, makes sense. And I do wanna hear more about the German case at some point too, <laughs> but I'll stick to the Q&A, which is filling up here. So uh, Christina Fick, a colleague uh, who will also be in the series in May um, is asking from Aarhus in Denmark, how will you evaluate the global promotion of LGBTQI right or diplomacy um, in a political context of populist and anti-gender, anti-LGBTQI manifestations, for example, in uh, accession countries in the EU. Um, so clearly we're seeing a lot of resistance against these kinds of policies and how does that affect any kind of inclusive foreign policy? Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I think you said Christina asked that question. Um, towards the tail end of my research, I did. I was in Stock, um, participant observation in Stockholm Pride in 2015, and then the last one I was there pre-COVID was 2019, and that was the first time I saw seminars and listened to debates about what's called homo-nationalism. And um, the main advocacy groups there were dealing with this issue of, of um, let me explain homo-nationalism quickly. It's, it's saying, you know, our Swedish identity is we believe in gender equality and part of that is LGBTI human rights. So if you don't believe in that, you don't belong. If you don't, you know, if you're a new immigrant, if you're a newcomer to Sweden and you do not believe in LGBTI equality, then, um, then you shouldn't be here. I mean, that's a really general sum summary um, that is often on the practice of kind of immigration and who is Swedish or who is Dutch or who is, you know, European? Does European identity include the belief um, in LGBTI equality and that belief is extended through policies? You know, should these things be allowed? So how to deal with that? How to deal in a diverse multicultural society where Sweden accepted um, a huge portion of immigrants during the Arab Spring? Um, so how to deal with these kind of, um, you know, questions of, of values and normative change, it's, it's a very complex um, discussion, but the main advocacy groups, you know, RFSL in particular, um, stresses the importance of inclusion, equality for all, and not excluding anybody, including immigrants. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Um, 
We have a question from Joyce Mooshaben, a colleague from the East Coast, Georgetown. Um, Joyce is reminding us that we should think about the European Union level here. Um, she says, I understand the limits of comparative analysis, find these national case studies very useful, but I'm curious as to why there's no reference to the EU in terms of institutionalization of LGBTI rights. Um, refers to the Amsterdam Treaty, rightly so, in 1997, uh, specifically including anti-discrimination provisions for sexual orientation in Article 13. Um, and Joyce asks, couldn't one argue that Sweden was out front, um, but there were a lot of other European countries really ready and willing to join into this rights-based um, effort. Um, and, um, you know, some ca have called it the pincer effect, the contagion effect, um, squeezing their governments into action by shaming, by um, allowing governments to say, hey, Sweden is doing it, the EU has these policies, why is nothing happening in our own country? So I guess the, the question is about the EU and the EU's role in this process, potentially. Yeah, thank you. You know, the EU um, is very important as far as a cohesive, you know, the EU external um, affairs is really important. I did some interviews there with in Brussels. And um, at the time, it was still just very, very new. It was still being formulated. And, and frankly, a lot of advocates were, were finding it an extremely ineffective route to go through the EU because you had 27 governments to deal with. Um, versus, you know, I found some ironic, or not ironic, but unexpected findings where advocates at, at some point, you know, around 2013, 2014, found more leverage going to the United States, working on, say, trade deal and incorporating human rights, incorporating decriminalization um, standards or, or um, advocating for that, say, in Sri Lanka. I can't, I uncovered this case where people were talking about this of, looking to advocate decriminalization, the US was ready to put it in trade negotiations, but the EU was not. And it was this kind of unexpected evolution where the US was somehow getting out ahead of the EU precisely because it was 27 governments and you have Hungary and you have Poland and you have, <laughs> you know, still Greece or Italy. You have these countries that are really not that progressive on LGBT rights, especially, you know, again, this is looking at almost 10 years ago. Um, so a lot of movement has happened now, but at the EU level, I think the bureaucratic aspect of it um, became, it is difficult for advocates to have movement, but there is a lot of traction now and uh, the stage looks different now. Um, but again, I think surprisingly so that Germany, this huge powerhouse economically has just come to the table and just kind of identified a formal um, policy pillar on this just this year. So, uh, you know, the, it's evolving, it's changing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, another question that kind of relates to what we just discussed earlier about where the pressure points are for nation states. Uh, Linda Gilby from Finland asks, uh, what can you say about the current efforts of the US Christian right to oppose sexual rights, human rights in EU institutions? Are they just as active post-Trump and is the opposition increasing? 
Um, okay, so I heard EU, I heard Christian right there. Um, you know, I think I think to generally characterize it, I think that uh, religious freedom issues tend to be stronger in the United States, whereas gender equality tends to be stronger in the European Union. Just as a, as a generalization, it tends to have more weight, it tends to have more leverage. Um, so uh, Christian evangelicals have enormous power in US foreign policy. And they have a lot of leverage. They have a lot of think tanks, a lot of um, you know, formal organizations. Um, whereas it's not as strong, you know, some people in the um, in CETA and the Swedish International Development Agency talk about every year, every year they get um, emails and they get opposition and they get organizations and, and uh, protests from um, religious groups in Sweden. But it's much smaller. It's and it's it's much less organized. In the U.S., it's it's a powerful force, and it's it's something I analyzed in the Ugandan case, where a lot of people argue that it was in fact American Christian evangelicals who went to Uganda, fired up the the parliament. Um, There's a few leaders that held speeches for two and three hours to the Ugandan parliament talking about the evils and the sins of homosexuality and leading to this proposed bill of the death penalty. So the, the Christian right is an absolute force in US foreign policy um, that, that continues to kind of ebb and flow with depending on who's in power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And um, um, another body of work that comes to mind that speaks to this is, is what our colleague Philo Yoop in uh, uh, California is doing right now in trying to understand the transnational influence of civil society organizations, many of them with a Christian right or ultra conservative right background in the US that really are not limited by borders, but pressure nation states, pressure international organizations, the EU also in particular on their policies. So I think um, addressing the transnational pressure points increasingly is is important here. Um, Thank you. So Olivia Gunn, a faculty colleague from Scandinavian Studies, is asking about something that I think is also very important, which is um, Nordic exceptionalism. Do we, by the way this, we hear the framing of your talk, um, do you allow for enough room to talk about the imperfections of the Scandinavian model, the Scandinavian society? Um, so, um, is this picture potentially too optimistic uh, or too white <laughs> that, that you're painting here? Uh, and what would be counter indicators for a more complicated narrative in the Sc- Scandinavian countries? Yes, thank you, Olivia. I'm surprised you didn't ask me about Norway, but I will talk <laughs> about Scandinavia in general because there is this, this, um, this trope of, of exceptionalism. And, and I tried to narrow the scope of my research of not looking at the efficacy of these policies. That's a whole nother study. And also not, you know, not with my job of, of looking at kind of value placing it or judging of, of um, how well it fits. But really the goal of my project was to look at the genesis of this. So how did this come about at all, 
yeah, and so yes, I do. I do talk about the um, absolutely still violence, discrimination, um, real problems exist in in Scandinavia. And in fact, you know, you can you see a lot of examples of where policies are replicated, and it's not always good. So, um, or it's not always progressive. There was a uh, a law connected to the Swedish law that allowed for the the state healthcare system paid for transgender surgery. But with that law came the requirement of sterilization. That law was replicated and copied in many, many different European countries. Sweden has since changed that law, but the countries that copy them have not. So yes, you know, there's some really problematic aspects um, that come with you know, social policy and change. But the focus of my, of my study was looking at how did this come about at all? You know, how do you, the U.S. would have never, ever, ever started this had it not been begun somewhere else. Mm -hmm. um, many people talked about this. We would have never been first. We would have never come out the gate. But the Dutch, but the Swedes, but the Norwegians, having set, you know, at least some framework for what this could look like in diplomatic dialogue in Jamaica, in Indonesia, then U.S. diplomats were, were willing to kind of get, get on board. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think I might have misrepresented Olivia a little bit because she's, she's coming back in and saying that's not quite how uh, she asked that question. Let me read it so all everybody understands and we're on the same page. I'm interested in your final comments about hypocrisy in my courses. Students are often startled to hear about the imperfections or failings of Scandinavian society. So I try to give them a less black and white, more historical picture. And I wonder how self-critique might play into policy. How much is it helpful, strategic or not to reinforce Nordic exceptionalism? What role might self-critique play in equitable engagement with local parties? So, this being about policy and practice, um, probably more strongly related to the question how these policy then are being, uh, how these policies are being act, acted out, how they're being implemented in local or regional practice. Yeah, when, when talking to leaders, I think this is one of the things they're most aware of and most, most you know, kind of um, self-conscious about that, that when a US special envoy or when a uh, Swedish member of parliament goes to another country, um, it can also often have this kind of colonial, uh, we're gonna tell you what to do poor country who's dependent on our aid um, feel to it. There's extreme sensitivity to this on both sides. You know, on the host government saying, we don't want your gay aid sometimes or saying, you know, don't imp impose your foreign values on our culture and community. Um, but then also the sensitivity from the side of the, of the leaders. I mean, I, I find extreme, um, you know, how do we build alliances? How do, we, how do we build a sense of solidarity? This is the point I brought up that a, a lot of times these dialogues look like um, almost opening it up with saying, Look at all this discrimination. Look at all these problems we have in our country. How can we work across borders? Um, it's often civil society groups working together, funded by these governments. 
So, you know, how does ILGA, the one of the leading organizations, um, you know, work in Poland and work in Germany? Um, so a lot of people are very, very conscious of this issue of not trying to, uh, of, of the hypocrisy of it. You know, we have some of the worst trans violence in the United States. Um, there's open and active, you know, suicide, mental health issues and discrimination in Swedish high schools still. Yeah, we see it. So it's really important um, to emphasize and a lot of a lot of the diplomatic dialogue does of emphasizing that this is not any country being perfected um, and then going out <laughs> and kind of, you know, preaching this. But also it's really importantly, so there's this uh, mission, USAID's mission statement is called do no harm. Lofty goal, right? <laughs> to just let's not harm people. Um, but the point, the point here is, is that you don't want to also not engage on the work. So a lot of advocates say, you know, promoting LGBTI rights and again, just ending decriminalization or stopping violence is still very controversial in a lot of places, in, in most places where the Global Equality Fund works. And so you have, to, you have to go in with the premise that these are not going to be easy conversations. These are not going to be even welcome conversations, um, but that still advocates describe it as do no harm, but still do something, still mm -hmm. engage in this conversation, still fund civil society, for then local groups to then decide what works locally with their communities and their culture. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think the last question I would like to pose feeds right into this um, translation of um, US, Swedish, other foreign diplomacy into uh, effectively encouraging policies um, in other places. So, and is it? Yeah, Arnie Bishop asks, um, to what degree these policies effectively address agrarious abuses based on sexual orientation and gender identity, such as in Chechnya or Nigeria or now Ghana? We know that conditioning aid is often more damaging than it is helpful. And so what examples have you found in your research that could serve um, as best practices, as, as good practices of exerting positive influence? Yeah, thank you, Ami. I wanna publicly thank Ami Bishop. She's instrumental, she's a leader and advocate and has worked with Outright Action International and I interviewed her for the book. So I really, I appreciate her wisdom and insights. Um, addressing the most, the, the worst forms of discrimination or violence or, or laws, um, it's really, really, really hard work. And so sometimes, you know, Ami's right that initially when this, when this first was started, it was cut the aid, let's just cut the aid, let's do this draconian measure of we're going to show that country we mean business. And um, you know, as more time goes on and more, more leaders listen to advocates, um, often that can lead to double discrimination where you're already discriminated against and then a foreign country cuts the aid and then you're, you've lost maybe your health care, maybe you've lost access to food aid um, and then blamed for it from your society. So that 
that there's a growing trend of understanding this is not necessarily the most effective way to address the issue. Um, but so rather let the local organizations decide, okay, how are we going to address it? And then the, I guess the, the frame that I've seen that is most, um, that is kind of evolving still is and utilized most right now is called bypassing aid. And that's where governments used to formally give to say in Uganda, say the US government, Swedish government used to fund the Ministry of Health or the Ministry of Education or the Ministry of Justice. So instead of funding the government, then they bypass the government instead and give instead that money to local civil society groups who are advocating for change and, and coming up with their policy priorities. So kind of taking away funding from the government, but still keeping you know, that same aid levels and still, um, still keeping that support to the community. Okay, okay. Um, we're out of time, but there's still one more really interesting question here in, in the chat that I'm just going to take the liberty to pose. It's from the chair of Scandinavian Studies, Andy Nesting, who wants to know if you have any insights on how the, 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 this discourse and that diplomacy in the Scandinavian context has translated into relations with Russia and the anti-LGBTI mobilizations there right now yeah or is absolutely. that the next project in the next book maybe <laughs> <laughs> yes yes you know i i think um this one was in the identity section where i you know heard interview uh, interviewed and then also heard speeches from heads of state and political party leaders saying russia does not define us that that basically lgbti rights kind of became this border between what is europe and what is Russia or what is out of Europe, um, where we are not going to let this, this powerful nation um, define us or decide what, what our values are. And this is part of what it means to be European. Um, so yes, they feel very, very, very strongly about, and then, and then just in, in the current context, you know, they do, um, the Swedish government does um, diplomatic boycotts um, towards Russia or does really active engagement in pride across the Baltics, across um, the region of trying to do kind of anti-gender anti and what Russia is trying to do of, of stopping and going regressive on LGBTI rights. Thank you so much. That's certainly a topic to watch out for, in, especially in these times right now. Thank you to Elisa. Thank you to our audience. I would like to take the last uh, 20 seconds to remind you that the second talk in the series by Professor Christina Fick from the University of Aarhus in Denmark will be on May 17th. And she will talk about gender equality in the EU in a quasi-permanent state of crisis, which I also think is quite accurate and something to look, look out for. So I hope to see many of you back then. For now, thank you for taking the time, Elisa, and thanks for your audience, for our audience to be here. Hope to see you soon again. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Sabina. Thank you.